0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalm, the book of Psalms, Psalm fifty-one. Psalm fifty-one. Growing up, I uh, I was thinking this week about growing up as a kid. And as a kid growing up, I had one brother. Uh, we were two child family, and I had one brother who was five and a half years older than me. And so as I got to growing older and got into sports and playing games and those kind of things, my brother was already involved in high school stuff, was already involved in extracurricular activities. And so he didn't play the games with me all the time. And so I had to become pretty self-sufficient in playing games. And so I just created games. Uh, Not new games necessarily, but just new ways to play games. And one of my favorite, I told you last week, was baseball. And so uh, out in my yard in our driveway was a wall that separated our house from our neighbor's house. And that became my backstop. And I was a world-famous pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals, the greatest pitcher in the history of the world. And I would play full games out there. And I had a system worked out that if it bounced once, it was a fly ball that I caught. If it bounced twice, it was a ground ball. I had to throw it back to a certain spot on the wall. I had to move. If I missed it, that was a hit. Now how far it went, determined single, double, triple home run. Um, I had the whole thing worked out. And I never played any game except it was in the World Series. I didn't play just a normal game. It had to be a World Series game. And here's the amazing thing. I never lost a game. Uh, I won every game I ever pitched in the World Series, and so I'm expecting the Hall of Fame to call me any moment with my induction. Uh, But one time it was raining outside. I know it's hard for us to imagine rain in the week that we've had, uh, but it was raining outside, and so I had to take my games inside, and baseball doesn't translate very well inside. Now, we had video games, but video games then were not like video games now, right? Right? I mean, I had the Atari 2600, and baseball on that had four guys that all ran the same direction at the same time. It wasn't quite the same. And so I wanted to find a new game, and I'd heard about this game called soccer. Now, growing up, if you've grown up in America the last few years, soccer's everywhere. But when I was growing up, it was not everywhere. And I'd heard about this game and thought it would be perfect for my room. And so I had one of a ball just like these, uh, one of these bouncy balls, I thought that would be the perfect ball because it's not hard, it doesn't hurt. If it hits me, if it bounces off, it's not going to hurt. And so this would be the perfect ball. I set up a goal. It was perfect distance between my television cabinet and my dresser. It was right there was my goal. And so I had quite an extensive one-on-none soccer game. But amazingly, with about two minutes left in the game. I don't know how many minutes were left in a soccer match, but I, I just pretended. With about a minute left, two minutes left, I got fouled in a place where I could take a penalty shot. So, some of you are laughing at my extensiveness. I put the ball down, placed it in the middle of the thing. It didn't roll around like that because it was carpet. And I lined up for a penalty shot. Now, I imagined a wall of guys sitting in front of me because I'd seen that somewhere, so I had to curve it around the wall. I lined up just perfectly, took a step, and kicked it. Nice catch, Clark. Now, here's the thing. Right above my imaginary goal were my windows to the outside. And I don't know what happened exactly that day, but I kicked that ball harder than I've ever kicked a ball in my life. Right into the window. Shatter. Now, here's what I thought. Uh Uh-oh. Because you see, that weekend it had rained two or three days, and I had been told by my dad on a couple of occasions, do not kick that ball in this house. Anybody parents out there ever said something like that? Maybe not the same. Yeah. Do not kick that ball in this house. Well here was the problem I had kicked that ball in this house and I had done something I could not cover up for two reasons. One, there was the sound, right? The shattering glass echoed throughout the house, and so I knew I had approximately 1.3 seconds to come up with something to explain what had just happened. Secondly, I was not very good at repairing windows. In fact, neither was my dad. That year, for the rest of the year, we had a Merry Christmas album, you know, 33. You remember albums? How many out there remember albums? Album cover, 33, that said, Merry Christmas, that face of the window, where the cars drove by. Now, here's the point. I was in one of those, uh uh-oh, I got caught moments. Anybody ever been there? Yeah. Anybody been there recently? No. (laughs) We've all been there, right? And the truth is that when you get in one of those, uh uh-oh, caught moments, the question then becomes how you deal with it. And in our lives in general, we find ourselves sometimes caught in one of those, uh uh-oh, I'm caught moments. And the question is, how do we deal with it? Psalm 51 is a story of a guy named David. It's the psalm of David. And David had been caught in one of those uh-oh moments. Psalm 51 is the story of David getting alone somewhere, someplace, by himself, writing out a psalm to God because he'd been caught. Most of you know the story if you grew up in church, but just in case... David was a great king of Israel. He was a guy that had led Israel back to a place of prominence it hadn't seen ever. The golden age, he had consolidated power, he had unified clans and tribes and families, and he had brought them into a military power that possessed land. And it says in Scripture that one year, when it became spring, and it was time for kings to go to war. Now that's kind of a strange phrase for us. you have to understand, they didn't go to war in winter for obvious reasons, but when spring came, instead of spring signifying in our country flowers and baseball and all of that, in their country, when spring came, it meant it's wartime, let's get ready and go. And it said in Scripture that one time when he was supposed to go to war, David decided to stay back, and he sent them into war, and when he stayed back, he just happened to find himself on the roof one day next to the roof of a young lady who was taking a bath. And as he allowed himself to be led down that road, he sinned, committed adultery with Bathsheba. Depending on how you read the text, it seems to suggest that it was not, um, it was forced by his power. And to cover up, because there were some consequences and ramifications of that adultery, he decides that the best way to cover that up is to have her husband killed so nobody knows. And so this man in Scripture that is said he was a man after God's own heart finds himself an adulterer and a murderer. And he decides to live with that for a year. Doesn't tell anybody, doesn't do anything about it, nothing's really revealed until one day a prophet of God named Nathan comes to him and he says to David, David, have you ever heard the story? And he tells a story about a man that went over and stole a sheep from a poor man. And this man had everything he wanted. And he took this man's sheep, but he wouldn't give it back. And David says, that's horrible. That's ridiculous. Nobody should ever be able to do something like that. And Nathan looks at him and says, you are that man. And at that moment, David's heart begins to break. And at some point thereafter, he climbs into a secret place and he writes down these words. Psalm 51. The title of this series has been fearless, and we've been talking about things you shouldn't be afraid of. What I want to tell you today is fear is not always a bad thing. You remember uh, the first story we told a couple of weeks ago was Jesus in the boat, and the wind and the waves are crashing, and everything's going on in the storm, and Jesus calms the storm. And we didn't read the last part of that verse or the last part of that story, but it says when the storm died down, they looked around and they said, "Wow, who is this that even the storm and the wind and the waves obey him?" And then it says, and they were afraid in scripture whenever anyone encounters god in a very real and personal way what immediately happens is their first thought is fear and so all fear is not bad And what we have in this scripture is a fear from david that he has disappointed god with his actions And the truth is, if it comes to whether or not we're going to disappoint God with our actions, we all will disappoint God with our actions. And David comes to the place that he finally realizes it's time to set down a course that is different and better. And that's what leads us to understand what we need to do when we find ourselves in that place. And the first thing is we've got to get honest with God look at him. David doesn't try to justify anything. He didn't try to rectify anything. All he says is, God, have mercy. Have mercy because, God, you, des- I deserve whatever you're going to punish me with. He says that later, doesn't he? When you do what is evil, I've done what is evil so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. What he basically says is, I have no excuse. God, I have done wrong. And because of that, whatever you decide to do is just. you got to get honest with God. Now, that's not how most of us usually handle sin in our lives. usually handle sin one of four ways. One is we rationalize our sin. Well, you know, Lord, I yeah, I messed up, but, but it really wasn't that bad. It didn't hurt anybody. Nobody really knows about it. I, I mean, I've, there are worse people out there than me, and my sin is not that bad. A second thing that we do is called spiritual habituation. That's a big word that just means we just get used to our sin. I don't wear a watch anymore. I found out that I checked my cell phone and my computer and those kind of places for time more than I checked my watch. And so I just don't wear a watch anymore. But I always remember that when I would get a new watch or a different watch, that when I would put it on my wrist, I would know it was there for a while. If you're a guy, it would kind of pinch your hair a little bit as it turned. It just felt different. Anybody been there? Just felt different? Okay. But you know what happened? After a few days, I no longer felt the watch on my wrist anymore. I just got used to it. It's kind of like when you move into a new house, and you move in, and whether it's a new brand new house or a house that has been owned by someone else, when you walk in, you usually have a list of things that you're going to fix, Right? A list of things you're going to fix or change or redo. And you have your list of things, and you start gung-ho on that list to start with. But over time, you kind of dwindle in what you're going to do. And before long, you just get used to those things you used to couldn't stand. Sometimes our spiritual lives are like that with sin. It just creeps in. And before long, we're doing something so much that we just don't even recognize what it is. Sometimes we handle our sin with religious fervor. We just try to do more and more with the church. We try to read more and more books. We try to sing more and more praise songs. We try to go to more and more church stuff. We try to work in more and more church things. We become more and more spiritual. And God looks at us and says, if there are things on your heart that are wrong, then I hate your religious ceremonies. The last way is we just hide. I remember I mentioned as a child, kicking the ball through the window. One of the first things I wanted to do was just to shut the door and get under the bed. And you know what? I can almost tell now when one of my boys has done something I'm not supposed to because I hear a door close. Now, I know that as they get older, that's just going to be because they don't want to be around me. But right now, it means something's wrong and I'm hiding. We do that. None of those are the appropriate response. The only appropriate response is to just get real, get honest before God and the truth is if we don't we suffer terrible consequences take your Bible, put your finger on Psalm 51 and go back to Psalm 32 not that far, just a little bit back and I want you to listen to what David said how he felt during that year that he was running from the Lord Psalm 32 starting in verse 1 and really verse 2 and 3 and 4 Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, that means when I held my sin in, when I didn't listen, when I wasn't attentive to the Lord, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. You can turn back to 51. Just listen to that description. It he talks about that what happens is when I was trying to live my life without confessing, without admitting, without telling you what was wrong, suddenly when I was trying to hide my sin, when I was trying to put it away, when I was trying not to deal with it, when I just got too comfortable with it, I started to wither within. I started to die within. It felt like I had a weight on top of me. And then one that we understand here in West in, in Middle Tennessee, in the western part of this world, when the tropical heat that sometimes hit us in the summer, says in the heat of the summer I felt my energy sapped. You know what it's like on a summer day? And the heat index is somewhere around 182, somewhere around there. 104, 105, those heat indexes get up there, and you go outside and you play or you work, and you just come in and you're just sapped. He said, that's the way I felt all the time because I held this in. So what's the solution? If it's not holding it in, if it's not hiding, if it's not religious fervor, it's not habituation, it's not rationalization, the key is you have to get honest with God. Brokenness. The reason Psalm 51 still speaks to us today is because it is a beautiful picture of brokenness. You know, in Scripture, brokenness is seen throughout Scripture. In the very first uh, story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, it says that the fellowship was broken. God even began to restore that. I remember the story of Gideon? I remember that story. 300 men are on the hillside. What does God tell them to do? How are they going to attack? They're going to put a light inside of a jar, bowl. something. you there? If you're there, just nod your head, all right? Put a light inside of a jar. When they get down to the camp, what are they supposed to do? Y'all are just looking at me here. You know. What are they supposed to do? Break the jars, right? All right, we're going back to Sunday school today, all right? We're going to break the jars, I do the light comes out, everybody gets afraid. But it's the brokenness that brings the victory. When you think of Job, Job says he was a man who was at ease, and yet God has broken him. When you go to the New Testament, you have this picture of the woman that comes and puts the perfume on Jesus' feet, and she breaks the bottle and pours it out on him. You have that great picture in the Lord's Supper when Jesus is telling what's going to happen to him, and he holds it up and he says he blessed the bread and he broke it. And said, this is my body broken for you. And then one of the most vivid pictures of the fact that sometimes God has to get us in a place where he has to break us in order to keep us in a safe place and to guard us from getting too far out of where we need to be is Psalm 23. You know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What's the next phrase? He makes me lie down in green pastures, right? Right. In his book, Phil Keller talks about, he's got a book called The Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. He says that that is a picture of brokenness without knowing it. Most of us don't realize that, but he says in that day and time, you would always have one little lamb that would want to run away. And so you'd try to guard the lamb, and the lamb would run away, and you'd bring the lamb back, and the lamb would run away, and you'd bring the lamb back, and the lamb would run away. You get the picture. All right, look at me and say, sometimes I'm the lamb. Sometimes we're like that, we run away. And here's what the shepherd would have to do. The shepherd would have to bring the lamb back, put him on his lap, guard him. He would want to say to him, little lamb, don't run away. What's the problem? The lamb is going to run away. So you know what he did? He would take him, put him over his knee, and he would break one of his legs and make him lie down in green pastures. Now, I know that sounds like the most tragic thing that ever happened. But why did they not want the sheep roaming off? There were things out there to eat the sheep, right? And one broken leg is better than no sheep, all right? I was thinking about that this week in dealing with my boys, and I didn't break either one of their legs, all right? But we had this week, earlier in the week, so I'm not contagious or breathing anything, we had H1N1 pay us a visit. Anybody out there had H1 visit their house? There we go. Good. Well, the old friend H1N1 visited our house, and as a result of that, we had to give medicine, right? And so we were supposed to give Luke this medicine. And we could talk to Luke and say, Luke, you know, you've got to take your medicine. It makes you better. I know, Dave. Take medicine make me feel better, all right? Dave, I'm not sick anymore. we, have, we still got to take the medicine to make you feel better. Would you like a treat? Yes. And we went up the treat ladder. We were all the way to a week full paid at disney world i mean you know we're going to take the medicine all right and so we get him up and he wanted to sit up on the counter we sit him up on the counter i take out the little syringe filled with the medicine i'm going to put it in his mouth and what does luke do mouth goes shut and i don't know if you've experienced the mouth of a three-year-old but it is the strongest single force known to man and it was shut and i knew i needed to get the medicine in him right because the medicine's going to make him better. He knew he didn't want the medicine, no matter how much he could rationalize it, and so this is what ended up happening. I ended up with my arm around him, holding both of his arms down. I had the syringe in these two fingers. These other two fingers are trying to pry open his lips so that I can slip the syringe in there and spout the medicine in without him spitting it back on. Anybody been there? Right? And what you do is, for parents, you know, just for us to kind of commiserate together here for a minute. You squirt it in, and then you hold the mouth shut so that he can't put it back out, all right? And I couldn't help but think that he just needs to take the medicine, and this would be so much easier if he would just listen and take the medicine, right? Sometimes God has to kind of put his arm around us, take our arms down, pry open our mouth, and give us the medicine. It'd be a lot easier sometimes we just take the medicine, but we don't. What I love about David here is he just gets honest with God and he says, God, I need you. He uses three pictures there. It's three interesting pictures. He says, first of all, God, have mercy. The first picture, he says, blot out my transgressions. And the idea here is to completely wipe out. The word blot there, another time it's used in Scripture, is over in Genesis when it talks about what God was going to do to the earth. In Noah's day, he was going to blot it out, wipe it out, get it off of the face of the earth. And that's what he says. God, I need that to happen to my sin. I need a clean slate. I need no residue. I need nobody seeing anything. And then he says, not only blot out my sins, but after you blot them out, I want you to scrub away my iniquity. Now, the, the word says wash away there, but the picture literally is of a lady down at the river scrubbing the clothes out. The picture I get growing up in the South and hearing stories of this is of a washboard. Anybody here ever used a washboard, seen a washboard? Okay, a couple of us. You scrub it, right? You just scrub it until it comes clean. I think about my, my boys when, when they get not not just kind of dirty, but... That really dirty where I've got to scrub them clean. And so what he says is, give me a clean slate, then wash me, scrub me, and then cleanse me. And cleansing there is a ceremonial cleansing that means everything you can to make me right for service for you. You just got to get honest with God. David says, I have no hope. Except you. The second thing you got to do is you got to take responsibility. David does that. He says, Lord, it is against you and you alone that I have sinned. It is nobody else's fault but mine. Over and over again in Psalm 51. Sometime this afternoon, go home and write down how many times he says me in confession or I. He talks about here that it is my iniquity, my sin, my transgressions, my transgressions again. I have sinned. I was sinful. Cleanse me. The whole point is it is my fault that we sin against God and God alone. We live in a blaming generation that wants to look for somebody else to take the blame for our shortcomings. And what happens here in Scripture is it makes it very clear that the problem with us is us a lot of debate going on in America right now why we're not seeing true worship or revival happening or things happening in America. I don't know whether you've seen the reports or not, but the church in America is not growing. Population has grown a lot in the last 10 years. The church has not. There's a lot of questions about worship and think, well, maybe it's the worship style or this or that. And I'll tell you, I don't think it has... As much to do with style of music or sermons being preached or people um, and what they like or dislike as much as I think part of the reason is because we have people sitting in the pews on every Sunday and preachers preaching from the pulpit on every Sunday that have yet to get honest with God and take responsibility for their sin. And so we come week after week, and we talk about the mercy and the grace and the love of Jesus, which is so true. And he does love us, and he cares for us. But the truth is that Scripture teaches, and we see in our own experience, that we are never used by God, we're never cleansed by God until we first come to God in honest and open admission of who we are. We've got to take responsibility. Our sin is serious business. When we sing a song like Jesus paid it all, sometimes it's easy to sing those words without understanding the full response that God gave for our sin. David says, I was sinful at birth. It's nobody else's fault but mine. You desire truth. You teach me wisdom. And then he says, cleanse me again, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Next thing you need to do is you just need to request renewal. The rest of this psalm is really about that. He says in verse 10 an interesting thing. He says, create in me a pure heart. The word create there is literally the same words that was used of God in creation in Genesis 1. And the point is that God is the only one that can take something completely new out of something that was not. And what David is saying literally is, I need a miracle, God. I cannot have my heart stay in me. You've got to create in me a pure, new, clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit in me because I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. He says in verse 11, I I really think that in his mind is this picture of the king that was before him. And he saw how God rejected Saul as king. And he says, God, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Lord, the most important thing in my life right now is for you to keep that relationship with me, to create that new heart, renew the steadfast spirit, and promise me your spirit will be here. Everything else doesn't matter compared to that. You see, true brokenness is saying, God, I don't just need you. You are all I need. And if everything else falls away and I've got you, that's okay. Restore to me the joy of salvation. Grant me a willing spirit. I love verse 13 because he basically says, if you do that, God, then I'll be able to teach transgressors. I'll be able to take this failure and turn it into ministry. And one of the most beautiful things about what God does is He often takes our biggest failures and turns them into our most significant ministries. Save me, O God, from blood, yet the one that saves me. Open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise. Verse 16 says, because I can't do anything about this on my own. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. God, I can't do anything about my sin except come before you broken. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. I don't know why God led me to this message this week. I began the week thinking I was going to be a pretty upbeat, happy message. And I'll be honest with you that Psalm 51 is one of those that does come on a happy ending, but I'm afraid that many of us in the church today want to rush to the happy ending without dealing with what leads to that. And as I read this passage of Scripture, I'm reminded again of the desire that we often have to just kind of shut off anytime God begins to convict us. I told you all a few, uh, about a year ago that I had the check engine light come on in my car, right? And how many people run around with a check engine light just always on in their car and never check engine? Well, the more interesting thing is I took it in to get it serviced, and the first thing they asked me is, do you want us just to turn the check engine light off where it won't come on again? And I thought, well, my first thought is absolutely. I don't need that thing coming on and bothering me. But here's the problem. If there's something wrong with my engine, how am I going to know? I'm not. Because I'm not good enough to know that on my own. Here's the thing. In churches, we've become real good at turning the check engine lights off. And there are Sundays when you sit here and God begins to work in your heart, God begins to say something to you, and the first thing you want to do is, could you please shut that check engine light off? And the real danger is you're here today and God may have spoken to you through something that was spoken or some song that was sung. And the first thing you want to do is shut that check engine light off. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of decision. We're going to sing. I'm going to invite you to come. If you feel the Lord speaking to your heart, let me just advise you, don't turn the check engine light off. Sometimes God will bring circumstances in your life. Sometimes it will feel like you're the little lamb being held down by the Lord. Perhaps that's a signal to you. it's time to change some things.